Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. North Carolina is not just the land for the British and Patriot soldiers of the North, such as Green and Cornwallis, who I mentioned, to fight on. One of the things this helps bring to light in a, in a general sense is that North Carolina had a revolutionary sentiment, a strong one, from the beginning. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Travis Copeland discussing the Paul Revere of North Carolina. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Travis Copeland, and he'll be discussing the attack on Fort Johnston, in Colonial, North Carolina. Travis has been on our show a number of times. He is uh, something of our one of our North Carolina experts. Uh, he does great work. And in his new article, he talks a lot about the politics of revolution. He talks about how not all colonies were, uh, we'll say, gangbusters on the idea of revolution from the beginning and how that is a long process. In a lot of ways in North Carolina... A true kind of physical manifestation of North Carolina's changeover to the Patriot cause was the construction of forts like Fort Johnston. It's a deep article. It's a rich article. It's very typical of what we publish at the Journal of the American Revolution. And I think you'll like it a lot. I know I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Travis Copeland. Travis Copeland, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. So I am a North Carolina, born and raised North Carolina native, uh, which is part of the reason why I uh, write for the journal mainly on North Carolina, because it interests me a lot to be a native, to have local history around me. Uh, I was born in western part of the state, but I've lived in several larger cities in North Carolina. Uh, I study history in college, and I'm working on a graduate degree in history as well, early American history, North Carolina history, southern history, if I could put a... uh, a specificity on it, but I also really love the outdoors. I love gardening, hiking, camping, anything that a good walk, even on a, on a random Tuesday, that'll put me outside. I also love to read. I think that's pretty natural for a lot of people that love history. A lot of people on the podcast like to read and like to research. So I love to, to research. It seems to come naturally in some sense, but for the most part, uh, pretty ordinary in all the uh, other respects, I would say. Travis, what first drew your interest into this topic? So anybody that takes an American Revolution class in college, which is the first place I discovered it in depth outside of high school, kind of that quick survey, you find that North Carolina and the South in particular get kind of swept up just in the larger, maybe you could call it New England War. North Carolina was discussed primarily in 1780 and 1781 when Cornwallis and Green arrive and start fighting. And you wrap up Southern revolutionary war history generally after Yorktown. 
And so I found I was interested in that, began digging into that, began writing about that, reading as much as I could about that period. But I found that often it was the outside years, 75, 76, 77, or even 1782 are neglected. And I found that to be a hole in my research, my knowledge. And so I set out to begin to write a little bit outside of that. I've written a couple other things in that respect and tried to find people who are writing about North Carolina in those really early years, because not as much is said, or it's not as easy to find accessible information. And so I first set out to just learn more. Uh, And as I began to uncover that, I realized how much story there was to be told in the years prior to uh, the 1780, and even after peace at Yorktown, or after the surrender before peace in 1783, there was still stories to be told about North Carolina's volatile transition, I suppose, from surrender, the British surrender to the peace at Yorktown. So I began looking in, and, and I also have grown up mostly in western North Carolina. So uh, the east is rather unfamiliar to me. Even geographically, other going to going to the beach, I am less familiar. So I began to take interest in what kind of things were going on over there. There were the elites living uh, mainly over there and the capital at the time was on the East Coast. So I ran into some of this information about Cornelius Arnett and just began digging through the sources and uncovered this magnificent story about Fort Johnston. What was North Carolina like in the early years of the revolution? In the early years, in the middle of the 1770s, much is going on in New England. Uh, often you'll hear critiques of it being a New England war or even Boston's war, if you want, with uh, the mother country with England. But North Carolina is beginning and the southern colonies are beginning to take note. And there is support that is growing out of that. Backtrack a little bit. North Carolina was one of the only, or the only colony to support the Stamp uh, Act in the Stamp Act crisis in the 1760s. So the British and, and many of the New England colonies feel that the Southern colonies maybe could be more willing to side with Britain. Britain will press that in the 1780s. But North Carolina has a really deep-seated revolutionary feel because they're concerned about their rights and liberties just as the New Englanders are. So North Carolina is not quite had the opportunity to be as forthright about that, such as Lexington and Concord or the things that happened in and around Boston in the 1770s. North Carolina also is less populated. So there's, there is a less organizational structure for militias. There are attempts to get militias formed in the local counties or in the larger towns, but the population is smaller, especially as you moved into the interior of North Carolina. And because the population is smaller, the ability to create a militia is smaller. And so there's less organizational structure. And that's true both for support for the British, as well as the Patriot cause. Loyalists and Patriots feel that that spaced out nature, except particularly on the East Coast, where there are there is more of a concentration of of individuals. But at the time, in 1774, 1773, before the burning of Fort Johnston and what we're going to talk about, North Carolina is still trying to eye the events in New England and see how they're going to unfold. It's not obvious that it's going to be independence yet. And even beyond that, North Carolina is still organizing itself. There's no colonial government. There's only the royal government uh, that is subservient to England. And so the 
colony has a lot of growth to do in its structured organization. It had only for about from about 50 years prior been separated from South Carolina. And that says something about the progression it's taken compared to some of the colonies to the north. But North Carolina has a strong revolutionary sentiment that we'll see. It's just it's going to take some act or some event to propel it forward to get organized and begin to make that known. Travis, you mentioned in your article that British observers viewed patriot leadership as inherently weak in some ways. Why was that? Yeah, the I think the, the jumping off point from the previous question uh, is certainly that there is a disorganization in the revolutionary or the patriot structures that are attempting to show Britain that there are sentiments that are going to protect their liberties at all costs. Also, there is a, as New England begins to, Lexington and Concord, and things begin to move quickly in the north, the most revolutionary southern colonists will move north to join Washington as that progresses and gets more intense. And there has been little fighting prior to, you remember much of the French and Indian War has occurred, more in the north, Canada. The experience of the individuals who are fighting or who will be fighting in North Carolina is minimal compared with their counterparts in New England outside of Indian warfare. And there's just a fractured nature to North Carolina's um, breakup of population. Because there's no deep water ports, the concentration or the ability to bring in supplies comes through various, various routes from Virginia or South Carolina. And so the population is kind of dotted and spread out. And so that disorganization leads to uh, miscommunication or trying to figure out who is the best fit. When you put all of that together, you get kind of a messy picture of North Carolina. It's going to take someone stepping up, even in the Wilmington Committee of Safety, like Cornelius Harnett, Samuel Ash, and some others. They're still, in some sense, largely local leaders. Local is kind of the driving force for North Carolina at the time. And it, the further the war gets, the more that is solidified into collective action. But North Carolina has kind of these larger spaces between populations. And so because of that, the fractured local nature creates, it weakens the ability of an individual that is charismatic or is able to lead a like Harnett or like Ash, it weakens their ability to succeed in that because the communication takes so long to get from town to town or to bring people in. People feel like they live in their locale in a much stronger sense than they might if North Carolina had been half the size it was, or if it had had a stronger network of communication or an easier route um, to bring trade in. So you get kind of this messy image and, and this very religious sentiment as well. A lot of German uh, and Quakers settle in North Carolina. And so this sentiment, like you'll see this with Salem in 1780s Greens there, this sentiment to try to support in a very moral sense, the well-being of the soldiers present. For example, Salem was willing to um, offer supplies and care for the British soldiers after Guilford Courthouse. And they did the same similar thing for Green in early 1780. And so the towns sometimes are not as willing to, to support the charismatic leaders. So it's a multi-factored, multifaceted aspect to this uh, weakened view, but the Patriot leadership eventually are going to show that that's inaccurate entirely, but that's the British perspective at the time. And there's some truth to it, at least in the early 1770s. This is very much kind of a political question, Travis, but 
how did rebellion finally catch on in North Carolina? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you could you could maybe make several arguments uh, from different routes. The one I think that is most evident from the sources of, and the leadership is the firing at Lexington and Concord in Massachusetts. And word is slow to get out from that event, but that event as the network of communication allows that to travel south and it arrives in May in North Carolina, it begins to upset the balance and order and it begins to reveal the sentiments of the patriots who are present who have been supportive of New England up to this point. Uh, For example, when the word arrives, Governor Martin, Josiah Martin, who's the royal governor of North Carolina, is going to be driven from his house uh, in kind of a something of a violent act. Uh, there was uh, some volatility to it. There's also going to be a circular circular letter written from the Continental uh, Congress representatives of North Carolina urging North Carolina to take up arms, to gather themselves into militias and support their brethren in the north or in New England. And so Lexington Concord begins, there are voices speaking out and there are things that begin to happen to kind of unseat the natural order. And this begins to get the ball moving from just words to deeds and allows North Carolina to begin to catch uh, that revolutionary fire, if you will. And it allows committees of safety to be organized which would be local bands to get militia together to organize their military response or protect goods if they need to. It's anti-British at its root. But all these come together out of Lexington and Concord, and it is a monumental event, not just in New England, but in the southern colonies. And sometimes that's overlooked easily, that North Carolina responded and was changed by that event in Massachusetts. Let's talk about the subject of your article, Fort Johnston. Uh, why was it built? Fort Johnson was built by the British in the late 1740s. And it was built, and when it was finished, why it was built was completely nullified. But it was built, really, there was concern over the Spanish. This is uh, prior to the French and Indian War. North Carolina has no deep water ports, but the Cape Fear River runs up into Wellington, uh, into North Carolina. And it's the closest thing that North Carolina has to a deep water port. It wasn't quite threatened in the same way, but there was concern that Wilmington and and some of those coastal towns could come under attack from a substantial British Navy or a Spanish Navy, excuse me, or French Navy. So they built this fort to protect the mouth of the Cape Fear River and to protect Wilmington. It was started in 1748. It was declared done by Gabriel Johnston, who it's named after in 1749, but it had only really been loosely constructed at the point. But it took about 15 years to finish. It was finished sometime in the middle of the 1760s, 1764, 65. But by that point, the French and Indian War had already been fought. And the French had been driven from their North American colonies. And the British had reached an agreement with Spain. And Spain was trading much more out of the Gulf and Florida at the time. And there was much more peace. So originally, it was built to protect from these large European navies, but it was no longer needed by the 1760s. So it, because of that, the use began to fade. There was not, it was not being upkept well. 
it was being garrisoned by the British, but they're just hanging out in this fort because there's no concern and no immediate threat. There's no Native Americans on the coast. They're in the interior of North Carolina. So the fort is built. It's really well done at the time. It's, it's, it would be useful to protect, but it bega- begins to dilapidate over time. And by the time we reach the 1770s, it's going to be uh, in a much uh, more vulnerable position than it probably should have been if the British been attentive to it. Why was the fort ultimately targeted? Uh, what was its value? So because it's so dilapidated and so run down, we don't know maybe necessarily to what extent, but it's not to the standard. There's more of a symbolic value in taking the fort. Now, I mentioned that Josiah Martin, the royal governor appointed by uh, the British, he had actually lived there for a little while in May and June when he was run out of his house uh, by some patriot, um, some people with patriot sentiments. And he had stayed there for a while. He had a, a ship called the Cruiser that he also could station at, like a captain's quarters, well kept in, in the respects because he was royal governor. But he stayed there for a little while. So there was some uh, non-symbolic, some actual action of driving the governor out of the fort. But he'd already been driven out of his house. And so even that wasn't necessarily going to be quite as dramatic. But taking this large fort, when the town of Wilmington feels like they need to show support with uh, the New England colonies and show that they themselves are going to protect their liberties. This symbolic act of saying we have the manpower, we have the abilities, we have the freedom, we have the, the sentiment, the support to take this substantial fort that was built by the British is going to show something to the British leadership. It's going to show something to Josiah Martin and say, we aren't going to take this line down. And this isn't just a New England war. This isn't just going to be something that Boston is dealing with or Massachusetts or or any other uh, New England area uh, colonist, that we, North Carolina, we are about this revolution. And so North Carolina, North Carolina's taking this fort is going to be symbolic. It's going to speak to, it's going to put deeds to their act, to their words. It'll drive uh, Governor Martin off into his uh, cruiser, the cruiser, his ship, but it's also going to be, uh, when something is aflame, you know, notice it in a different way and it, it speaks volumes and it's charred. It says something about how willing the inhabitants are to protect something that they feel is valuable. So that's going to be important as well for the, uh, the colonists. Let's talk about the attack itself. Absolutely. So it's important to note the fort was stationed at the time by six, eight, 10 given on the day, British soldiers, they were there for whatever reason you might could come up with uh, just symbolically, maybe in the same respect. Captain John Collett's house was attached to the fort. They had built uh, some kind of living quarters for him. And he worked with the Royal governor, Josiah Martin closely in military matters. Uh, again, there's not very many people there. He's not spending a super, uh, a lot of time at the fort necessarily, but they feel the need to garrison it and protect it. They built it. They spent the money on it and they spent the manpower, so they need to protect it in some sense. But in the attack, uh, this is in July, middle of July, uh, Cornelius Farnett, Samuel Ash, Robert Howe, and some others gather together about 500 men. They declare that the fort needs to be basically seized, but they decide to fire it. So in the, e- in the middle of the night, in this uh, July 19th, 1775, the men uh, run to the fort, 
Governor Martin has gotten wind of this and is actually on his uh, ship called the Cruiser. So he's awoken to these 500 men led by these revolutionaries setting fire to the fort. And he's woken up and comes up to the deck to find the fort ablaze, which at the time, obviously, it was it was largely made of wood when it could have been out of brick or, or rock or anything like that. It was largely wood. So it burned rather well, which was a very iconic act to wake up and have the royal governor having had to spend the night on his ship, watch this fort that the British built uh, that symbolized their military might be up in flames was a very important act. But they largely speaking, no one was injured that I'm aware of. The, um, the fort burned fairly well. But they were forced to come back in the morning. Some of it had not burned, including Captain John Collett's house. So they came back the next morning and fired the fort and burned everything that had somehow escaped the flames. There's not really mentioned exactly how they, what was burned and what wasn't. But we know that that house was burned. And they were very intentional to burn Captain Collett's house because he was the commander of the fort. But no one necessarily harmed it angers Josiah Martin and it says something to not just the town or the people visible, but it starts showing up the newspapers and spreads beyond that to symbolize North Carolina is going to side with the Patriots in this cause. What occurred in the aftermath of the assault? So in the immediate aftermath, after everything's burned down, uh, the fort is generally left to decay for a long time. It plays no real other, there is a slight attempt to try to rebuild it. Uh, in the years subsequent time, but immediately after Josiah Martin is extremely angered by the event. In part, he sees, he sees it as unnecessary. The events of Lexington and Concord had upset the balance in North Carolina, but to burn this fort down, he doesn't see the direct correlation from anything I can tell. There are circular letters. He publishes one. It's quoted in a newspaper and there are some British newspapers, some loyalists that support the British writing in favor of Josiah Martin's proclamation saying that they need to lay their arms down. They need to submit to the king and submit to parliament and submit to the British government and be good loyal citizens. And then there are Patriot newspapers quoting the circular letter from Josiah Martin and writing and saying, this is, we will not stand for this sentiment. Why can he, why would he ask us to lay our arms down? So there's a, a back and forth. And as you can imagine, even with tabloid press, there's spins and explanation on what occurred to try to shed it in their light. But Josiah Martin is extremely upset and he feels he turns in some sense from governing this colony that has had little general conflict to seeing this colony in much uh, stronger light. He feels the need for more British soldiers a stronger rule of hand from his position and from his commanders. And so it does solidify North Carolina standing with the New England colonies saying, we will not stand for British rule anymore. Uh, this will push them towards independence and it will show the British that they're willing to fight uh, and maybe even eventually willing to die in favor of this cause. But the press keeps up this back and forth for quite a bit of time in trying to sort out both what happened over the event and where this leaves North Carolina in relationship to the mother country. Travis, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Yeah, I think it's a great question because I love one of my, maybe you could say soapboxes is that North Carolina is not just the land for the British and Patriot soldiers of the North 
such as Green and Cornwallis that I mentioned to fight on. One of the things this helps bring to light in, in a general sense is that North Carolina had a revolutionary sentiment, a strong one from the beginning, from the early 1770s, that this is not a New England war, the American Revolution. It's not a, not a middle colonies war, but it is a war of all 13 colonies. And North Carolina was as revolutionary and as supportive in every way uh, as any other colony that you can think of. And I think that's really important that we understand that, that we teach that that way, and that we give some credence to the North Carolinians. I also think it helps us understand the nature of uh, the specific structure and organization and political sentiments of North Carolina's individual people, such as Harnett and Ash and others, that even though there was some disorganization and the British viewed them as weak, they were still willing to collectively gather together a Wilmington Committee of Safety, find the men they needed, and symbolically burn this fort to the ground in order to demonstrate to the British their revolutionary sentiment. They didn't feel like they had to send letters to every town and county in North Carolina and say, we're all going to agree on this, but there was a, the movement was local. It was organic. It began to happen in a way that showed the deepest sentiments of the individuals, which goes along with that general um, revolutionary feeling, North Carolina that I mentioned, but together, I think that helps us re-envision the Southern colonies and helps us understand how they fit better into the larger picture and how they're affected by uh, what's going on in the North and that this really is a war for American independence and not just the independence of some small colony or individual state or group. Great as always, Travis. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode include works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.